0: morning everybody how are you guys doing this afternoon yeah like one person is good or what are you guys happy to be in church (laughs) it's awesome i just feel like uh have you guys ever noticed that forbes magazine once in a while puts out like the top hundred whatever richest people in the world the top hundred whatever else people in the world I feel like if they would publish an article that said top 100 most blessed people in the world, I'd be on that list. Might not make the cover, but uh, probably in the, in the top couple, because I just, I just feel incredibly blessed. You know how, so we're, whatever, we're working through a series of messages here in John, and we've already done two parts. Remember, the first part was about, we talked about how John, when he starts writing this book he was connecting, like, words that would resemble Genesis right back to Jesus, and just clearly that Jesus has to be the Lord, and, and then in the second part, do you, do you remember what we did? What was kind of odd about the second sermon? Thanks. Yeah, giving thanks, which that would be too bad if that was odd, but we were pausing to do, like, a, a spending time, like, Lord, what are the blessings in my life? And I just really think, like, if I, if I, when I make up a list like that, I just recognize, man, I am incredibly blessed. And then to realize, on top of all of those blessings, that I actually get to stand here and talk about Jesus all day, that is awesome. Absolutely awesome. And it is, uh, I don't know that I would actually want to be anywhere else. It's good. So I'm very excited about what we're doing today. We're just going to keep on reading in the book of. Book of John, but I want you to realize something. When John's talking about the way that he writes that whole letter, and actually every book in the Bible is like this, but he's writing it when he, it's not just a history book. If it was a history book, what would it be about? History. There are some historic things because there are stories in there that did happen, yes, but it's not about history. What's it about? Or who is it about? It's about Jesus. That you could almost title that entire book. Well, whatever, it's not actually the book isn't Jesus, but you could you could title it that because it is actually all about Jesus. And so even when John is referring to people like John the Baptist, it's always done in a way that John the Baptist never gets to be the main character. He's always just a segue to Jesus. And uh and every you'll recognize that throughout the whole book. But anyway. Um let, let me just ask the Lord for his blessing. Lord, I just, as we talk about you, Jesus, oh Lord, I just pray that our... Huh, could you give us, could you give us what the Pharisees missed? That's what I pray. Jesus, I pray that we would have exactly that. There were people in your day, Jesus, who chanted crucify him, crucify him. And they had the Old Testament almost completely memorized. Lord, I pray that we would not be like that. I pray that we, Lord, would have what they missed, that we would not water down truth, that we would be hungry for who you are, and we would actually desire for our spiritual eyes to be opened so that we can maybe comprehend a little bit more about who you are, and how much you love us, and the good things that you have in store for us, Jesus. Could that even happen here this morning as we just spend some time in your word? In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. So we've already read through the first 18 verses in John chapter 1, and uh, that means we're going to start with verse 19. Huh? You guys must have had some coffee this morning. Now, this was John's testimony. John who? John the Baptist. Exactly. Not to be confused because you guys know this well, but John, who writes this account, is not John the Baptist. He's writing about John the Baptist. They just both happen to have the same name. Now, this was John the Baptist's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess But confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. So, assumedly, they had asked him, like, are you the Messiah? He said, nope, not me. And then they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no. It almost seems like they're playing a game of charades, Right? Okay, who exactly are you? Are you the Messiah? No. Uh, Elijah? No. Prophet? No. <laughs> but it seems kind of weird. We might glaze over that pretty quick, but there's actually a lot of truth behind that passage. Why are these Pharisees who know the Old Testament, like literally, if you go to Jerusalem today and you go right next to the um, what's sometimes known as the Wailing Wall, or that western wall of the temple, and you go right around the corner in that next room what are you going to find? you're going to find it full of priests and they are either praying or they are memorizing scripture and it's true, in Israel today if, you're, if you grow up in Israel uh, and you're a, a guy you're going to have to spend three years in the military your only option out of that is, and I don't know, I forget what they call it Richard, do you know what they call it? It's like they, they go to Bible school, but they call it, it's not Bible school. But, but those guys, if you're not going to go into the military, you are now taking training. But in that training, and I've seen the guys there, they have the Torah open and whatever, and they are memorizing, and they have huge portions of it memorized. These guys are like that. They have huge portions of the Old Testament memorized. They know it so well, and because they know it, they are looking for the Messiah, and they're looking for Elijah, and they're looking for the prophet. Now, before we get too far ahead, what does the word Messiah mean? Yeah, it actually does mean the same thing as Christ. What does Christ mean? Anointed one. one. It says right on the screen, right? (laughs) Messiah in Hebrew and Christ in Greek mean the same thing. They mean anointed one. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It's actually a descriptor of who he is. Jesus, anointed one. And if you say Jesus, Messiah, it would be the same thing. Jesus, anointed one. That is really important to understand. That's going to become important in a few verses here. But also to understand this. These guys knew from the Old Testament that a Messiah was coming, and so they're wondering, are you the Messiah? They're looking for him. And they're also looking for Elijah because they know the Old Testament. The Old Testament said, Elijah didn't die. He just went up to heaven. And one of the last prophecies in the Old Testament, in the the end of Malachi, it says uh, that um, Elijah would return before the day of the Lord. And so they are anticipating this return of Elijah. Elijah. And they're actually pretty close, because John the Baptist wasn't Elijah, but his dad, the angel had told Zechariah, your son is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's exactly what he was doing. And Jesus would even confirm that later in his ministry, that John the Baptist was operating, he was fulfilling that prophecy, he was coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he wasn't actually Elijah. Right, So when the Pharisees ask him, they're actually fairly close. But they misapplied it. It wasn't actually Elijah who was going to come back, but it would be John the Baptist. Anyway, so that's why they ask him, because they know. They're looking for Elijah. And they also know, because they've been studying Deuteronomy, probably chapter 18, that they ought to be looking for a significant prophet, like the prophet. And they know that based on the Old Testament. And so they're looking for Jesus. Well, they're looking for specifically the Messiah, the prophet, and also Elijah. Now, John the Baptist was not the prophet, but he was actually a prophet. Right? Because he actually said many things about Jesus that later, if you read in chapter 10, I think it is, they actually everything that he said about Jesus came true. In fact, I think it's in chapter 10, that says, uh, it is, 10 verse 40. But in chapter 10, people would later realize, hey, what John the Baptist said about Jesus is true, and it resulted in many people coming to know Jesus. Later on, Peter and uh, Stephen would preach that Jesus was actually the prophet. Okay? This is interesting, because what does a prophet do? size okay <laughs> that's, well what does that what does that mean what are we saying with that okay tells the future how would they know the future yeah from what God so, so really what a prophet does a prophet hears from God and speaks it that's what a prophet does could be the future but the prophet hears from God and then speaks it Jesus did that all the time He said stuff like, my teaching isn't my own. It actually comes from the one who sent me. He was hearing from God and speaking it, right? He would say, "Um, I only say what the Father tells me to say. Or he said, these words that I'm speaking, they're not my own, actually. They belong to the Father who sent me. He, He was always operating in that being the ultimate prophet, right? Here's a really chilling, really chilling thing to me. That I'm going to ask you this question, and you don't have to answer it out loud, but I I think it would be wise for us to think about this. These guys who knew the scriptures backwards and forwards knew that they ought to look for a Messiah, look for Elijah, and look for the prophet, yet most of them, except for Nicodemus, but most of them are going to completely miss not only John the Baptist, but they're going to miss Jesus, and he was right there. What is it that they were lacking? because it was not an, a knowledge of the Scriptures. Yeah, and you can, you can, it's a question, I'm not even going to tell you the answer. But ask the Lord that question, because I don't want us ever to, to be in that same place. Chew on that with the Lord. Let's keep on reading. John 1:22. So, these Pharisees, they come and they say, finally, they say, like, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. You ever wonder that? You ever wonder what it would feel like to be John the Baptist? And know that you are the fulfillment of prophecy. That you are the one who has been chosen to prepare people to meet Jesus. Wakes up in the morning, has another helping of locusts and wild honey, <laughs> and then, Lord, what's on the what's on the schedule today? You're going to prepare people to meet me. All oh, right, that's my job. Isn't that cool? And I think John the Baptist really understood who he was, and that's probably why he will say later in a different in one of the sermons coming up once we get into the next chapter or two. You'll hear him say something like, Jesus must become greater, I must become less, because he knew his place. Fascinating. Verse 24, now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you, you guys can read that harder, more with more enthusiasm, okay? Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you? baptize if you're not the Messiah nor Elijah nor the prophet. They're still trying to figure this out. Right? What does it mean? What does the word baptize mean? I guess this is going to be a water break. (laughs) Submerge. Okay? The word... Confession of faith? faith? Kate? Okay. Yeah. So if you... if you And this is what we do when, when we confess our faith. We get baptized. It's clear instruction in Scripture. And if you grab a Bible dictionary and you study the word baptize, I think the Greek word here is baptizo or something like that. But that word means, and depending on the dictionary, the, I'm talking a Bible dictionary, depending on the Bible dictionary that you use, it will mean to either dip... Submerse or immerse. Sometimes the word wash would be in there. Okay? So if I'm baptizing somebody in the let's say the Juber Creek and I want to do that, and let's say the water was about the height of the top of the pulpit here, and I want to baptize somebody in that regard, would I go this far? Or <laughs> would I go? This far? Or would I actually go that far? Yeah, right? Are you guys with me? How far would I go if I wanted to immerse them? Yeah, make sure they get all the way under. Right? That's exactly what that word means, actually. Now, this is not a slight at anybody who has been baptized by pouring. Because I was also baptized by pouring. And in fact, the same principle is even demonstrated during that as well. And, and I just am adamantly convinced that Jesus knows our heart when we get baptized, and so I don't, I don't know that it makes too much of a difference, poured or immersed, but the concept is very much the same. Because listen, when I was, was my dad actually who poured that water on my head, but he didn't just pour it on my feet, he didn't just pour it on my shoulders, he understood that it means to be completely submerged, and so he poured it on my head. Does that make sense? It's because it's supposed to cover all of us. That's the imagery. That's clearly what that word means. And if you don't believe me, then just go home and grab your Bible dictionary. But that's what you will find out. So let's keep reading. Verse 26. I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. Interesting. Interesting. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So, verse 26 is very interesting to me because John is essentially saying, there's one of us here who is the Messiah, and you don't know who he is. That's kind of what he's saying. Because he's saying, and and in verse 27, and isn't that interesting that there was nothing physically identifiable about Jesus that would make you go, aha, I can tell, he's the Messiah. Because what does Messiah mean again? Anointed one. There was nothing physical about his appearance that would identify him. That's exactly what Isaiah 53 said. There's literally nothing in his appearance that made us desire him. And so he's among these people, and they can't know him. Verse 27 is also interesting, because verse 27, what does John the Baptist obviously have in his heart towards Jesus? Humility, and what else? Yes, exactly. It's, It's both of those two things, and by the way, everybody has said exactly those two words today. Because he has a great humility before the Lord, recognizing his place, and a great respect or fear of the Lord, like we talked about last week. That's what John has for Jesus. And then we keep reading. Verse 28 this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. If you get into a big study and you look at it on a map, that gets a little confusing because that isn't the same Bethany that's right close by Jerusalem. It's actually a different Bethany. But anyway. You can do some Bible study on that. Verse 29 says this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, hold on just a second. In verse 26, John the Baptist says you can't know him. And even here again, he says, I don't know him either. But then he says, but look, there he is. <laughs> how, can he, how can that be happening? How is that true? Okay, so let's think about this a little bit. In Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus, John actually has a little conversation with Jesus and says, uh, Jesus, hold on, you should be the one baptizing me right? And so clearly, John the Baptist knew who Jesus was, knew that he was Jesus. But did he realize he was the Messiah, the anointed one? Other people will have known he was Jesus too, and I even think John the Baptist, he was a cousin or relative of some kind of of Jesus. I've always assumed, and still do, that they, as kids, they probably went to festivals together and celebrated the Passover together or whatever. And they must have known, John must have known who Jesus is, okay? But even Jesus' brothers, they obviously would have known who he, that he was Jesus, but they didn't know that he was the Christ. Does that make sense? What does Christ mean again? The anointed one. Okay, And I think that's exactly what's going on here because the point is, we could have a big discussion about this, but the point is, John the Baptist had not gotten confirmation prior to this that Jesus was actually the Christ until something very significant would happen and John the Baptist himself explains it in the next verse. Verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw. He saw something. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And, he says it again, I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. This would have been God telling him these words. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So think about this carefully. How did John the Baptist know that Jesus was the Christ? Just shout it out. Yeah, he saw the Spirit come down on like something like a dove. He, he, his spiritual eyes were open and somehow saw it happen. And it's not something that John made up it's actually a prophesied at least four times just in the book of Isaiah alone that the coming Savior is going to have the Spirit on him. Literally, on him. And this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And so it's fascinating to know this, that it's actually the Holy Spirit who makes Jesus Messiah. It's the Holy Spirit who makes Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Now, let's think about this a little bit, this whole anointing business. Think about somebody in the Old Testament who was anointed by, with oil. Just in your head, you just, just, just get a name there. You don't have to say it out loud or anything, but just get a name there if you can. Now, most likely, the name of that person was one of three offices of people. Either that person's going to be a king, a prophet or a priest. Because those were the three kinds of people that got anointed with oil in the Old Testament. Sometimes the oil even ran down their beards. That's what it says. And they didn't just get anointed with oil, they were also anointed with the Holy Spirit to carry out and give them power to accomplish their tasks. Does it make sense? And what does the oil represent? Oil in the Old Testament represents the Holy Spirit. Even in the New Testament, it represents the Holy Spirit. That's why when somebody's sick and he calls the elders of the church, they anoint him with oil, it represents the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing. This kind of stuff makes the Old Testament so relevant, it is actually amazing. That's maybe a safe word. But we already know that Jesus is the prophet. The book of Hebrews calls him the great high priest. And is he also the king? Come on, guys, you got to help me out on this one. Is Jesus the king? He's the king of kings. He fulfills all those offices. And so we shouldn't be surprised then that he receives an anointing so that he can carry out his ministry. And it is not surprising then that he received this anointing prior to his ministry. It's that kind of an, when you understand that the whole Old Testament, all those stories of people being anointed, that actually leading, each one of those stories is leading us to Jesus and understanding who he is, and even understanding a little bit more about the Holy Spirit. Suddenly the Old Testament becomes very relevant because we understand who we understand the new covenant now because of what was happening symbolically in the Old Testament. It's also what Zechariah said, and we all know this verse by heart, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty, right? And this isn't just something that Christians say and we make up and whatever. It is throughout the New Testament, and I'm just going to if there's too many scriptures to go through, so I'm just going to put the references up there. If you want to study them, you can't, but I'm going to read the gist of what I would get from reading those kinds of verses, okay? We already know that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And He was anointed with the Holy Spirit at His baptism, which prepared Him, equipped Him for ministry. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert, and He returned from the desert in the power of the Holy Spirit. He preached by the power of the Holy Spirit. He received instructions from the Father by the Holy Spirit. He even gave instructions to his disciples through the Holy Spirit. And I'm not just throwing these words in there. Those are right out of these references. There's verses that indicate that he even, when he, ha- when he healed people, that power to heal came through the Holy Spirit. The power to cast out demons was from the Holy Spirit. And he even experienced the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Specifically, obviously, the, the example is given of joy. And even if you, ever, if you ever wonder how Jesus had the strength to face such a cruel death, Hebrews 9 verse 14 says that that actually came through the Holy Spirit, that strength to face his death. Romans 8 says, mentions and indicates that the Holy Spirit was even involved with raising him from the dead. So let's go back to John one thirty three. If we go back and look at these words again. These words that John the Baptist got from God say, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will Baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now let me ask you a really bold question and you don't have to answer audibly. Just in your head. Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Like, don't run out of the building, okay? I'm just asking you this question. Do you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? With the Holy Spirit, maybe you're thinking, "Well, what exactly does that mean?" Oh, exactly, submerged. It is actually, it is exactly that. But here's—I'll tell you, I'll tell you honestly—I don't know the entirety of what that means. I'm going to show you some scripture that would give some indication of what it means. But I don't know the entirety. I'll tell you this. I am still learning about what exactly that means. But I'll tell you this. Whatever that means, I want it. Let me me explain this, and then I'm going to ask you the same question again. And again, just in your head. This is not about trusting me that I will somehow be correctly telling you exactly what baptism of the Holy Spirit means. That's not what it's about. It is also not about some other human that you have heard get it wrong or whatever, you didn't like them or something, and they told you what baptism of the Holy Spirit means. It's not about that. You don't have to trust them either. This is about trusting God's Word that says, Jesus came. He's the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The question is actually, do you trust him enough to say, whatever you meant, Jesus, with those words, I want that. That's the question. So you just answer that in your question, in your, in your mind to the Lord. It makes me want to say, actually, Daddy, can I? Can I have some more of the Holy Spirit? Because he's a good father he gives the holy spirit to those who ask anyway let me let me keep on going most christians not all but most christians today can agree on two things hopefully more but anyway when it comes to this they can agree on two things that all believers receive the holy spirit and blessings immediately when they accept jesus as their lord and savior Okay? Most Christians would believe that that happens immediately when you accept Jesus. Secondly, most believers would believe that they should be open to and could expect further or more fillings of the Holy Spirit even after that time. Okay? Let me just walk that. I'll. I'll I'll kind of get there by walking through Scripture, and again, there's far too much Scripture to include it all here, so I'm just going to give you the references, and you can research this at home. There are five accounts given in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is poured out on a group of people. And when you read those accounts, it seems to clearly indicate that the Holy Spirit is given the moment a person accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior except in two cases except in the case of the very first Pentecost and in Acts chapter 8 the case of the Samaritans now at Pentecost to be clear here you got these 120 believers, they were already believers in Jesus, didn't have the Holy Spirit poured out on them yet but how could they? It was, it was the start of a new covenant, right? And so I think that's clearly the exception. And what about the Samaritans in Acts 8? It's interesting to me, the same kind of thing happened. They were believing in Jesus, and then Peter and John came, put their hands on them, and then they received the Holy Spirit. What's happening there? It seems, it seems to me like God set it up intentionally that the church leaders who were Jewish would come over to the Samaritans to see These guys are actually following Jesus, and then when these church leaders would pray over them, they would see these guys are also transitioning into this new covenant, and they would know it because they saw it with their own eyes. And so I also think that's an exception, because it's the beginning of the new covenant. Anyway, however you see those, there's a bunch of other scriptures that would clearly indicate that you cannot even be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. And so, the old scriptures would indicate that every Christian has the Holy Spirit right from conversion. But that doesn't mean, again, scripturally, that you couldn't experience further or more fillings of the Holy Spirit later. I would use Peter as an example for that. So in John 20, after Jesus' death, but before, well before Pentecost, Jesus appears to his disciples. He breathes on them and says what? Receive the Holy Spirit. And so I think they did, to whatever measure that was. And then later, again before Pentecost, Jesus gives them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized, how far? (laughs) All the way he submersed them with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then Peter in uh, Acts 2-4, that's Pentecost, Peter was among the 120 that experienced the Holy Spirit. He's the one who stood up and addressed the crowd and told them what was going on. And then In Acts 4, verse 8, Peter and John are brought up, they're arrested and brought to trial. And when they take the stand, it says they're filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke to the authorities. So the Holy Spirit maybe gave them words or the wisdom or the tone or whatever and how to respond. And then in the end of Acts 4, Peter and John go back to the church and they boldly, well, they pray to the Lord begging him to help them, and then it says the whole church, Peter was there, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and started speaking what? Boldly. And so, right there you have four examples, and you might even dig up a fifth one, but there's four examples of Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit. So not only are Christians given the Holy Spirit at conversion, not only can they have subsequent fillings of the Holy Spirit, but many Christians, this would include myself for sure, actually go even one step farther and say that we should desire those subsequent fillings of the Holy Spirit. We should actually want to have them. And I'm not going to waste any time debating which one of those is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Is the the baptism of the Holy Spirit when you get converted? Or is it one of those other times? Which one is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And I'll, I'll be very honest with you. I have an opinion on that. But it's completely irrelevant, actually. The whole point is not which one is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The point is that if that is the gift that comes from Jesus, comes from God, I should want it. That's the point. And there is no formula to being filled with the Holy Spirit other than a willingness on our part. In fact, in our and, and people have a variety of experiences with this. It's not the same for everyone. Within our elder board, I asked them this question yesterday, actually, at a meeting. Within our elder board, there is a variety of experiences. Some, some of our elders have experienced the Holy Spirit so forcefully and so suddenly, all at one time, it was just like Jesus said in Acts 1.8, they received power when the Holy Spirit came on them. And this isn't just like one of our elders. Three of them have had those kinds of experiences. And for other elders, and sometimes the same ones because they've had maybe more than one experience, it's been it's actually been much more like a process. Well, it didn't all happen suddenly. It almost seemed to happen gradually over some time. And also in the case of our elders in this church, um, it doesn't, encountering the Holy Spirit doesn't always mean speaking in tongues. And yet it can, because with some of our elders it has. And this is actually, I think, what we see in the New Testament that people don't have a cookie cutter experience with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Again, I'm going to put some references on here. You can research these at home, but when I read these verses, I see that when, some, when people specifically encounter the Holy Spirit, some people experience great joy. Other people experience a hunger to pray, and learn the scriptures and fellowship with other believers. Some have a desire to worship. Others have a desire to repair relationships. Some experience an instantaneous victory over a bondage to sin. And some begin speaking in tongues. And while some do begin speaking in tongues when they encounter the Holy Spirit, not everyone with the Spirit speaks in tongues. Not everyone who's filled with the Spirit speaks in tongues. For instance, when the Bible says that Zechariah and later his wife Elizabeth, it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, they prophesied in their own language their normal language. Peter and John, the story I already told you, when they came up to give uh, to speak with the authorities, they also were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke, but it was in their language. And they were given wisdom or something. The church when it was filled with the Holy Spirit received boldness. Stephen when he was being martyred, it said he was filled with the Spirit and what happened to him? He saw, he looked up, he got stoned to death, and as he was getting stoned to death, he looked up, he was filled with the Spirit, and he looked up, and he actually saw an incredible vision of heaven. So Ephesians 5.18 says this, don't be drunk with wine, because that's going to ruin your life. Instead, yeah, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that Paul would put those two back to back. If you immerse yourself with the bottle, is it going to wreck your life? Well, you guys don't look very convinced. We could start sharing some stories, okay? I've seen it. I think you guys have too. People who are immersed with alcohol, it tends to wreck their life rather be filled with the Holy Spirit, it actually has the opposite effect. In the early church in Acts 6, it was one of the references on the previous slide there, in Acts 6, they actually even, they used that as a qualification to look for volunteers in the church. They said, we're looking for seven guys who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. In another sermon, we might answer the question of why we need to be filled with the holy spirit but today i just want to look at how okay as i look at scripture and if you know more ways then you tell me but as i look at scripture i can see about nine different ways that we can be filled with the holy spirit one is to obey his commands john 15 verse 10 for instance says if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. And I think that if we remain in the love of the one who came to baptize us with the Holy Spirit, I think there's a connection to be feel, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you would read it in the Old Testament, that story about King Saul, 1 Samuel 15 and 16, he disobeyed. And what happened to him? The exact opposite. Okay, if we confess all of our known sin, 1 John says this, if you confess your sin, you're actually going to walk in fellowship with God. You're walking in fellowship in a relationship, actually, with the one who came to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Number three, if you offer yourselves fully to God, even to the point of being a living sacrifice— Number four is depend on the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, for instance, it says by the Spirit we can overcome sin and the temptation to sin. Galatians 5 kind of says a similar thing about depending on the Holy Spirit, but it says since you live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. There should be a dependence there. Another way that I think we can be filled with the Holy Spirit is by asking through prayer. According to Luke's account of the baptism of Jesus, what was Jesus doing when, when the Holy Spirit came down on him? He was praying. In fact, Luke eleven thirteen. this is what I was referencing before, Jesus said, even though you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Okay? That's, that's like saying, that's me. I'm one of those evil dads. Okay? There's other evil dads in the room here. Okay? This is what Jesus is saying. You guys, even though you're evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. Maybe you don't give as many as I should, but I know how to do it. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? We can ask in prayer. In Ephesians 5 even talks about this prayer, um, including others, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as a way of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Number six, that passage in Ephesians 5 talks exactly about this. Through praise and worship, we can be filled with the Spirit by giving thanks to God. Number eight, through the laying on of hands, this is exactly how it happened with the Samaritans Peter and John came, they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit it's the same way it happened to Timothy the group of elders got together and laid their hands on Timothy and he was filled with the Spirit Paul said he did the same thing I'm not sure if that means he's part of the group of elders or if it was a separate time I don't know know for sure but Paul did the same thing he put his hands on Timothy and Timothy received a filling of the Holy Spirit so here's what I would like to say very carefully, I cannot manipulate God into filling me with the Holy Spirit in a way that isn't from Him or in His timing. Okay? I'll say that again. I can't manipulate God into filling me with the Holy Spirit in a way that either isn't from Him or isn't in His timing. And I think that works like that does with spiritual gifts, and we know this for sure. The, the spiritual gifts, First Corinthians 12, are given out As who determines? Yeah, as the Holy Spirit determines, or as He determines, as God determines. He determines it, and yet, He does determine it, and so the timing is Him, how He is going to do it is going to be Him, how exactly I experience Him, that is up to Him. But when I look at this list, how many on those lists can you or I choose whether or not to do? all of them. And so based on John 133, Jesus came to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And what does it mean to baptize again? <laughs> yeah, dip, submerge, immerse, get under, right? So are you and I willing to respond to, the, to Jesus in that regard when it comes to the Holy Spirit? Or are we willing to actually go all the way under? We could even ask, are we willing to allow the Holy Spirit to... He, he gets to determine what that experience will look like for me, but am I willing for Him to let me experience maybe the same things that they did in the New Testament? in the Bible? Or do I say, okay, well, I'll take these ones because those sound, I can get my brain around those, right? I just, that's not going to happen. Who would we ever be to talk like that? Here's, this, here's actually what I find very fascinating about God and His sovereignty and how much He allows us to determine because Hebrews 3 says that we can actually harden our hearts towards the Holy Spirit. He allows us that opportunity, if you want to call it that. In Ephesians 4, he says we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can offend Him. Some people, when they talk about the Holy Spirit like a dove, doves are easily frightened. All it takes is a sudden movement and it will the dove will fly away. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. First Thessalonians even says that we can put out His fire. We can quench the Holy Spirit. And so here's where we get to number nine. This is the good one. Humble ourselves before God. I think that's another way of being filled with the Spirit because of what it says in James and Luke 18 and so on. But in James it says that God promises to give grace to those who humble themselves before Him. That's like an empowerment of grace. That's not just more forgiveness for sin. That is an empowering that's happening there. He also says in that same passage, he will lift them up. In Luke, he, ta- he says, those who humble themselves, he will exalt them. So what if, what if a demonstration of humility before the Lord would involve standing up out of your chairs in front of other people? I know, please please don't run out of the building. Let me explain what I'm thinking here. I want to give an opportunity for you to show Jesus that you're just interested in whatever he said in John one thirty three, Not in what Delan said, not in what Delan believes or someone else, whatever. I'm just, I want to give an opportunity for you to show Jesus that, yeah, in humility, I would just like to, and I'm going to give this invitation in like two minutes from now, but that to stand up and just by standing up saying yeah lord i i whatever whatever you jesus meant by john 133 i want that but i know how people work i know some of us are like slow processors i'm one of those people i'm like hold on a second here i don't feel comfortable right now just give me <laughs> i'm going to need some time to think about this and that's okay so so do this Turn to your neighbor right now and just say, if you don't stand up, no one's looking down on you. Do it right now. Turn to your neighbor and say something like, if you don't stand up, no one's going to look down on you. (laughs) So can I tell you something? You know what's funny? Sometimes it's not always that funny. It's a little bit challenging sometimes. Sometimes. You know what's challenging about leading? As soon as you have more than one person in the church, you know what's challenging? We have different response levels to Jesus and different response levels to the Holy Spirit even. And if and if you so if we just think about this imagery of like allowing ourselves to be immersed under the Holy Spirit, some of us are like, "Yes, I want that." Some of us are like, "Well, hold on a second, I'm not sure." And I, in my head, I almost see it like you can imagine if we were all in a backyard party and there's a beautiful pool there. Beautiful swimming pool. And we, I called you guys all over. We're going to have a pool party. Some of you come up to the pool and what do you do? You just kind <laughs> of you dip your toe in there, see how cold the water is. And some of us, we know we want to get in the water, but only with a life jacket on. Because why? We don't want to submerge. And then there's some of us who would actually like back up so we can take a speed and run and like do a cannonball or climb up and jump off of the roof into the pool. For what reason? Because we want to submerge. And within the church, you have all of those places, people in various levels of that. When they think, as soon as they hear the words, baptism of the Holy Spirit, that you have those responses. And so here's what I am wanting to do. I feel like I can't end this sermon without giving some kind of an invitation to respond to the Lord, okay? So... I'm going to give this invitation to stand up, but what we're, what we're saying with this invitation is just simply to stand up and acknowledge. You don't even have to say, Jesus, I'm jumping into the pool. All we're saying is by standing up, thank you for the pool. That's it. In other words, and I'm using a silly analogy there, but essentially what I'm saying is, Jesus, you said, John 1 John you came to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And for that, I'm grateful. And I'm willing to stand up just in humility before you and say, whatever you meant with that verse, that I want. So I'm going to close my eyes and pray. Sermon's over after that. And I don't, I'm not even looking. Whoever wants to stand up, you can do that right now, just in an effort to, to show the Lord, and there's no pressure, just in an effort to show the Lord, Lord, in humility. I just thank you, what you came to do. Jesus, as I think about what you came, and how you are the Messiah, anointed one, you are the Christ, anointed one, and it is because you have the Holy Spirit that you, can, that you came As the Messiah, to baptize others, including me, with the Holy Spirit. And for that, I am ever grateful, Lord. And I pray, Jesus, that you would wake up within me a genuine desire that I would not become put off by different situations or stories that might come to my mind that quickly offend me, but that I might just look directly to you without letting anyone else get in the way and just say, Jesus. Whatever you meant with John one thirty three, I want that. I pray this, Jesus, in your precious and holy name, with great thanksgiving in my heart. And everybody who agreed with that said, Amen. Amen.